Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to transform the world within you and transform the world around you. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, welcome to Cultural Catalyst, where we teach you how to live fully alive, co-labor with God, and change the world. I'm your host, Chris Valentin, and today I have Donald Miller, who wrote Blue Like Jazz. He's a New York best-selling author, public speaker, and business owner. I had to actually read all that because we've been friends for so many years. I'm like, what have you accomplished since I knew you last? And uh, since we, since I had you out, thank you so much for being on. My pleasure. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Well, I, I got to tell you, a bunch of my team are in here because they're like, Donna Miller's here. We all read his books. So, uh, yeah, it's downhill from here on out. <laughs> So excited to talk to you uh, about owning your story and living a full purpose life. Life full of purpose is what they wrote here. See that? I, I'm even reading notes right now. Hey, conversation, what have you been doing? What are you up to? And what makes you alive right now? Uh, one answer, Chris. I became a dad. I know. I've got a 16-month-old named Emmeline who is the life of the party. She's pretty much been the life of the party since she came out of the womb. She is the happiest human. And I'm really not saying this. I mean, I realize no dad is objective. Yes. Yes. But I honestly think she's the happiest human being I've ever met. I mean, from from second one, when she wakes up, she is filled with joy. And uh, I, I bet you there's been five times when she's she's not been happy first thing in the morning through the through the rest of the day. And usually it's because, you know, she got a fever or something. So it's it's mostly figuring out, uh, you know, how to be a good dad. Uh, you know, being a good husband—that's that's the exciting thing that happened. That's happened to me over the last two years. You know, I have a granddaughter who's two, two and a half. Her name's Edie. Two days ago, we were moving a very heavy uh, massage chair upstairs, and and my son Jason, who's that's her dad, brings her with me, with her with him, and so she's standing there. And of course, you know, of course, my wife is trying to keep her out of the way. And she's she's going like this. Good job, you guys. You can do it. Oh, you guys, come on. You can get this done. Two and a half years old. She's saying that for the half hour we're trying to get this. this uh, trying to get this. Uh, it was like I said to her, I need to bring her to work and just have her do that all day long. You know. It, she, exactly. She, Every time you respond to an email, just have her clap. It's so cool. Hey, you just wrote a book, Hero on a Mission. Yeah, and it's a pathway to a meaning, meaningful life that actually confronts the victim mentality. I have to be honest; I haven't read that book. A bunch of my team have read that book, and they're like, "You got to interview them about this book." So, why did you write this book, and why does it feel important to you today? Yeah, it's you know that book came out in January. It feels like five years ago, but it came out in January, and um, I'd been thinking about that you know, the stuff that's in the book for about five or seven years and had kind of had some, you know how it is to try to write a book and you get three chapters into it. It's just not there. It's, you're not ready. <laughs> the, the, the the ideas are half baked and all that kind of stuff. And uh, finally, I thought, I think I've got it in me and and started it and finished it. But really for me, the, the why of that book is because there was, there's a, there's a psychologist some might even say a personality theorist called Viktor Frankl, who was a Viennese psychologist back in the 1940s. Wow. And um, he developed 
well, at the time, Sigmund Freud there in Vienna was saying that man exists to pursue pleasure. It's the dominant desire of every human being is to wake up in the morning and find pleasure or comfort or escape or whatever. And Viktor Frankl actually came along in the same period of time and said, it isn't. He's, He's wrong about that. He contended with Freud and he said, man's desire, chief desire is not pleasure. It's actually meaning. And when he or she cannot find meaning, they actually distract themselves with pleasure. And that you will only forego pleasure because meaning is, is really the only thing in life that trumps it. And when we distract ourselves and don't have meaning, we um, it's, it's a, a recipe for depression, anxiety, all that kind of stuff. Now, he, he developed this theory in the early 30s. But as a Jewish man in Vienna was sent to the concentration camps, was in three different concentration camps, lost his mother, his father, his wife, and and their unborn baby. Wow. Tens of, you know, millions of other Jews, I think three million. Uh, forgive me for not knowing that statistic offhand. You know, so it was, it was a crisis. Three months after getting out of Auschwitz alive, three months after Chris, he does a speaking tour. And he defends the idea that life is both meaningful and beautiful. Wow. And it's it was some of the most powerful writing I've ever seen. It is religiously agnostic. Okay. I was, I was just about to ask you that. Yeah, but but what was fascinating to me as a Christian was that the, you know, you and I can get into theology of this, you're going to school me on it. But the what, what was interesting to me as a Christian was that the the formula that he was recommending or prescribing to patients in order to experience meaning was right in line with the way Jesus is telling us to live. And there are basically three components to it. One is you need to have a project or a vision or something that you're building. Everybody needs that. It can be as small as, you know, you know, trying to, trying to learn the piano or as big as trying to raise a family or as big as trying to build a global church or whatever, you know, it it doesn't matter. He said, he says, look, it doesn't matter. You need a project that occupies your time and that, you know, requires uniquely you. He said the second thing you need is a community uh, that vi- that meaning will not be experienced in a vacuum. You will not experience it alone. You need those. those these this experience needs to be shared. And then the third, which is the most powerful of all of them, the most life changing for me was that you need a redemptive perspective on your suffering. And so what he meant was every human being will suffer. You need to to find some place in your mind where you say, well, suffering is very painful, but it is also making me stronger or but it is also making me more tender or but it is also humbling me or but, you know, you you need a but also for every kind of suffering that you encounter. So they gave Viktor Frankl a, a, a job in the Viennese hospital system, the teenagers in Vienna were were committing suicide in 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 uncomfortably large numbers and he went in and prescribed what he called logotherapy which is basically the things that I just talked about these were community groups in which everybody needed to identify a project and then you needed to go through the most painful things in your life and accept them acknowledge them don't be delusionally optimistic but also say wait a second this is a mixed bag it has also given me wow uh some there's an upside to this yeah and the the suicide rate in Vienna in that hospital system of, of which they were experiencing crisis numbers ended 
and not a single person committed suicide under his watch. So, wow, that is powerful. So- it's extremely powerful. And it's something that I discovered having sort of vacillated emotionally, you know, up and down. I discovered uh, that when I had a big project to work on or something important to do, I, you know, I, I didn't struggle with, I, I'm not a person who struggles with depression sort of naturally anyway. Yeah. I understand there are yeah. people who are, but you know, you when you finish a book, there's a crash. Yeah. yeah. You kind of like, why am I on this planet? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and why didn't that work? Yeah. I didn't that, that book deliver, you know, what we're going to get eventually in my theology at the wedding feast of the lamb. Why didn't that happen when I wrote a yeah, book? Well, exactly. there's a reason for that anyway. Um, so, you know, so, uh, what I discovered with with Victor Frankel was he when the credits when the credits roll on a story, you you need to get yourself a new story, quick. Wow. And essentially, what you're really doing is distracting yourself from nihilism. And most of the most of the many of the personality theorists, and certainly most of the kind of humanistic uh, philosophers, Nietzsche and Kant and Jean Paul Sartre, you know, they all they all ended up more or less subscribing to to this idea that life was completely meaningless. And Frankel would say, look, you're not going to arrive at a position where you where you can sort of honor and experience the meaning of life by sitting down reading a book. You you actually have to go do something. Yeah. And to me, that's where when you lay that over sort of the book of Acts and this strong bias toward action. And you know, I think James says yeah. Uh, faith without action is dead. Yeah. Um, it made a suddenly it made a lot of sense to me, and I've been living that way ever since. Let's see, that was 13 years ago, and I really mean it. There's been difficult days. You know, I lost my mom. Yeah, uh, had a, a friend and a coworker commit suicide. There were there have been some very very wow. painful wow. days. Yeah, but I have not uh, I've not felt in any of that or a single day since. Uh, a sense of meaninglessness. How do you, man? That's let me say that's incredibly powerful. Now I would really want to read the book. And, <laughs> and you know, I, I've been, I've had, I've kind of coined this phrase: "Vision gives pain a purpose." And I've been saying uh, things like, "Your pain, if you, if you, if your pain has a purpose, you won't. It'll take you out of depression, out of that, you know, victim mentality." How how does your personal faith? played into the meaning of life because i i know you're a deeply committed believer you know so you wrote this book and you're you know you learned this stuff how did you apply how did your faith work into that a couple ways you know one of the things that that i believe is that to some degree and for some people it's totally contextual but that that uh god doesn't always, in fact, mostly, I don't believe, tells you exactly what he wants you to do. He actually gives you some options. Yeah. And by options, I mean, it's sort of a conversation that you would have with your humanly father saying, you know, I think I want to be a professional bowler. And your dad kind of says, well, you know, that, that could be fun, but it's probably the stupidest thing I've ever yeah. heard. What about yeah. it? <laughs> and, there, you know, there's some guidance there. And, you know, even Goose Hill, this place that we talked about before we started recording, Betsy and I live on 15 acres and we developed into this basic, this kind of retreat center, but you can't pay to come here. It's just for friends and family. Uh, there are currently, like right now, I think there's 20 people on property. <laughs> you got a lot of friends. That's part of your problem. 
Yeah, well, these are all every one of them is a family. It's one one of Betsy's family members. Oh my goodness! You know, it's it's really a that whole thing was a vision that I I I honestly feel, Chris, and you may correct me on this. I don't know. I I feel like God and I dreamed it up together. It wasn't just Don. I want you to go build an ark. Yeah, yeah. This this isn't an ark, which happens sometimes in our lives. So I want you to do something really specific. It's not going to make any sense to you, but I want you to do it. You know, for me, it was like, hey, what do you love doing? We love hospitality, uh, and we started building it, and the, mo- the money kept coming in. And uh, if I'd have known how expensive it was it was going to be, I probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, and and that was really fun. And then there are other things that I feel like are callings in my life, and God and I go back and forth on whether that's my ego, whether those are my wounds, or whether that's something that that we could do together. And um but the, the most important thing is to always have something that you're you're working so on, beautiful. So beautiful. even if what you're working on is rest. Yeah, you know, but but have a clear vision of what you're trying to do here. Uh, Bill Bill Johnson, you know, he's been my leader for 45 years. I've been with him 45 years. He coined this phrase. Uh, he wrote a book uh, called "Dreaming with God," that basically, that basically embraces what you just said. In that, um, you know, the love chapter. 13 talks about love and doesn't seek his own it, it, it's not selfish so on and so forth we, we we realize that god was talking about his love the way he loves us before he's ever talking about how we love one another right and so yeah. we talk we talk through the fact that you know the lord actually yeah he's not giving us commands you know in fact he says in john 15 i no longer call you a slave because a slave does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. And so, you know, we call it we call it the benefits of friendship that God that we actually co-labor with the Lord. We actually dream the dreams of God. We actually dream together, um, dreaming with God. So I, I love I love this because we haven't seen each other for quite a while, but you're you actually getting the same kind of things that we are, you know, as far as your relationship with the Lord and how you're you know, how you built Goose Hill on co, co-dreaming co with God kind of thing. Yeah. You, you have so many dimensions to your life, so many different gifts and passions. I, I follow you on Instagram. I follow tons of people on Instagram, actually. But I always stop and read what you're doing. I listen to whatever video you put on there because I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by you know, you're a business guy. You really, you really a, a teacher. You, you, you just have so many, you know, passions. You're an author. Um, you know, you're a public speaker. You, in this whole defining purpose idea, how how do you do, like? Is there a thorough way through those, or do you kind of say these are these are my purpose, or these are expressions of my purpose? Like, is there anything that's happening inside you that goes, yeah, I can be good at 20 things, but I should do one, or I can wrap my arms around these 20 things. Is there any wisdom for that? People be listening. Lots of people are like, I, I'm good at five things, and I, I'm trying to find this, this sense of what do I do? Uh, that's kind of the question I'm trying to help answer for people listening. Well, you know, I can only answer that from my my personal perspective, Chris, and for me as life you know, as I get into my fifties, um, I'm 51 that, you know, life, life is looking like it's going to have three major chapters. 
in terms of career. Yes. You know, the first yes. is the sort of Christian memoir, learning to write, uh, embracing that as as a craft. Um, that was uh, that was hard earned. I mean, I was I was pretty darn poor until I was in my you know my thirties, uh, and trying to figure out how to put words in front of each other and. Uh, and that was great and wrote a bunch of books and those, those did well. And then, uh, felt that coming to an end, you know, not, not because I, I didn't want to write. I still loved it, but I also felt like you, if you write, I think I'd written seven more or less Christian memoirs. They were really more topical books, but they had a memoir a voice to them. Yeah. If you write your eighth memoir, you're, you're a clinical narcissist. <laughs> and you stop. Oh, the publisher kept wanting another one. I'm like, well, I, I don't want to be a clinical narcissist. I'm just a regular narcissist. So I don't want to be a clinical. So um, I ended up writing a business book about branding and marketing. Yes. Ended up being selling hundreds of thousands of copies. And, and God, God was gracious to give me a second career in business. That story brand book. Yeah, the building story brand book, and then what we did was, you know, so many people liked that book, and they wanted us to create their marketing. We, I said, I don't, I don't really do that, but we started certifying marketers in our frameworks, and yeah. we ended up yeah. with about, we're, I think we have seven hundred of those marketers all over the world. And now, in order to do that, I had to scale up a company into the millions and tens of millions, and had a big staff, and all of a sudden now I'm entrepreneur running a staff and <laughs> figured out a more simple way to run a small business with using six different frameworks. Now that part of my career is about to happen in March of next year. I'll release a book called "How to Grow Your Small Business," and we're certifying business coaches. But but you know, in, so I'm in chapter two. Yeah, chapter two. You know, ha I kind of have a vision of getting my personal company up north of a hundred million, and we, I want twenty five hundred small business coaches protecting and growing. Uh, America's small businesses. There are 33 million small businesses in America. Wow. It's the number one employer in the country. 65% wow. of those businesses will fail. And to me, yep. small yep. business is too big to fail. And so I want to raise an army to help them figure out how to grow. And then career number three, which I'm starting to put a little, little investment in, is not to run for office, but to sort of affect the American political system. I think we're in a very dangerous place. Uh, both internally and externally. Internally, there's so much infighting. As you know, yeah. people who hate each other don't tend to get much done. No. And so a buddy of mine who's a, a, a blue dog Democrat who I've known for many, many years, uh, he's a black guy, I'm a white guy. We're, we're coming together to uh, put together a, a six-tier plan for America's uh, future. And... Uh, all we will do is go around and get people to sign the petition and then then present legislation to Congress that we can so we can move forward on criminal justice reform, education, the economy, foreign policy, uh, and a couple other things. So, um, I've been working behind the scenes as a messaging guy for a lot of politicians and a lot of political think tanks. Yeah. And so that's kind of been happening for a long time. So, you know, I don't know, three chapters. And then quite honestly, man, I'm going to be really glad to get out of here. It's, it's a lot of work. <laughs> I'm going to go to heaven and you, fly around. Yeah, you're probably not going to go to heaven real soon. I'm hoping no. not. I got a 16-year-month-old yeah, daughter. Yeah, I hope yeah, I'm here yeah. for a while. Yeah. I was going to say, you got, a, you got a fourth career right there. You got a little girl right there. And you got... And you well, got and then that, that doesn't even count. Those three stories don't encompass what, what we all know life is really about, yeah, which is yeah. relationships and passing on 
mostly our our love uh, and God's love to the next generation. So that takes up now more of my time than anything else. But it honestly doesn't it doesn't feel like work. You know, I love I'm I'm very very grateful to have a wife. Period. Uh, and I'm even more grateful to have a, you know, a daughter and for my life to have turned out this way. Betsy and I, we've had three or four arguments our entire marriage. There's no drama in our house. To be able to come home to peace and and being restored, and hopefully she's restored with me, has allowed us to do all this other crazy stuff. Yeah, I I uh I am echoing your relationship. I've been married 47 years been with my wife since she was 12 so we've been together you know 52 years and uh, we have had I, I i share this all the time we've had a few bad hours in our marriage but never a bad day now we've had lots of bad days let me be clear we've been through a lot but not with each other so yeah so that's, that's and that's nothing against couples who have some tension no, and you know no. have some drama i don't we just our chemistry just doesn't do that you know, you, uh, Legacy, I, I didn't know this about you. For some reason, one of my team uh, brought this to light. So if it's inaccurate, please fix it. She said that you were raised by a single mom. And I'm wondering, I just wrote a book on fatherhood called Uprising. Yeah, I've been following some of your material on yeah, it. Yeah, so and I'm wondering how, did you, did you have a dad? Can you tell us that story and maybe how that fit into your journey of you talked about pain, walking out of pain, you know, giving your pain a purpose. I think I put those words, pain a purpose, but having a, having a vision for your pain. Uh, uh, tell me a little bit about that because I'm, I'm so intrigued right now with fatherhood stories. As you know, you write a book and you're not just writing a book. You're actually in this space. Right. So, so Yeah, and so, I did the same thing. I wrote a book about growing up without a dad many, many years ago. Did you? This, yeah, I did. It was called... Uh, well, they changed the name of it. Now it's called Father Fiction. Oh, I I have that book. I just, I don't think I ever read the whole thing though. Yeah, same. Well, it's not that it's not that good. <laughs> but it's, but uh, so funny. yeah. So my dad left our home when I was two years old. Oh wow. So mom raised us on you know we lived we we were standing in line for government cheese and you know we were we were very poor and. Uh, and she did an amazing job. She's a heroic figure in my life. There was a there was a guy down at the church, local Baptist church, literally walking distance from my house, named David Gentiles, who was a youth pastor. Who was really, you know, I say I grew up without a dad, but I kind of grew up with the best dad I could possibly imagine. And it was this guy down at the church, and uh, you know, there's nothing you can't replace a dad, a biological dad mm. who's who's plugged in and and a good man. Uh, but I didn't have that. So, so David Gentiles was kind of a father figure for me. Um, and as I grew up, you'll love this. I mean, I, you know, wrote some books and kind of became successful. I thought, well, whatever, whatever issues you have growing up without a dad didn't happen to me. So I decided to go <laughs> off on a, uh, over, a, on, on one of the San Juan islands and write a book about having grown up with a, da a dad and kind of process the stuff. And in the, in the, in the process of writing that book, realized I was a complete basket case, and most of the issues <laughs> in my life happened because I didn't have a dad, <laughs> which is not a good position to be if you're trying to write a book to help people. Exactly. Um, and uh, and so started, you know, started to kind of work backwards through some of that stuff, and you know, codependency, and 
a lack of masculine identity, you know, to some degree was a part of it. When And then, oh, you'll love this. After the book came out, I realized the story's not over. I know I'm finished with the book and it's out, but I don't, I don't know where my dad is. And I've, my mother never spoke of him. And, uh, I, I did some digging and found him. Oh my goodness. I was in Chicago one night, one day, one night when I got word of where he was and who he was. And I literally called him that night and left him a voicemail and said, he was like five hours away in Indiana. And I said, Hey, my name is Don Miller. I'm your son. And <laughs> I'm going to get in my car tomorrow morning. I'm going to drive to Indiana. I'm going to see you. <laughs> oh my God. He called me back while I was driving. Cause I'm like, I'm going to go to the guy's house. No matter what, if he's there, he's there. If he's not, he's not, I got nothing to do. And, uh, he emailed, he called me and left me. I didn't answer the phone. I was so nervous, but I knew it was him. He left me voice. He said, come on, you know, I, 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 I'd love to talk to you. Knocked on the guy's door. He invited me inside. We sat for about three hours. He talked 95% of the time, he had a beer in his hand and Fox news on the television. He never turned the television off. And he ended that conversation telling, you know, he really what he was, what he was doing was trying to say, here's why I left. And here's why we don't know each other. Yeah. yeah. At the end of it, he looked at me, he said, I, I owe you an apology. Will you forgive me? And I said, absolutely. And that was a major, major healing moment for me. Now, I, some people don't need to do that because yeah. got some dads who yeah. their yeah. best, let's keep it separate. But for me, that was a major moment. Again, the thing that really helped me, Chris, was I realized that all this this thing that, I, that had been over me for so long, this lack of sort of masculine uh, approval, yeah, uh, which is so important, yeah. I think, for right. us young men, um, that I realized this is just a guy. He he's not God. He's he's got he had his own confusion at the time. He had his own stuff going on. He. You know, he didn't have any bearings. He, he made a big mistake, but but this is not God's. This is not God leaving me. This is a this is a guy who was young and immature who left, and it, it, for some reason, it was just very healing for me to walk out of there. Uh, and then I would also say, you know, I most if you walk into any prison, most of those guys grew up without that. Oh yeah, ninety ninety over ninety five percent right now. It's really, it's a bad deal. Yeah. There's another side to that, though. If you can seek the healing that you need to seek and and, and be honest about it, just say, hey, there's stuff missing in my life. Yeah. I need to see yeah. a counselor. I need to figure out what some of this stuff is. And if you're open to that, I think you can actually become an even better man. I think that's yeah. the that's yeah. God's little little bit of yeah. Uh, irony. Yeah. Take some, he'll take some sort of tragedy. And just like Viktor Frankl says, he'll turn you into a better person because of it. I only say that to say... I feel like if I hadn't grown up without a father, Chris, I wouldn't be so motivated to be a great dad to my daughter. You know, it's, you know, strange. And, it's, it's and so there are things that I get because I, I went through that, yeah. that maybe I wouldn't have gotten if I also, I don't think I would have been, I wouldn't have had a chip on my shoulder. I wouldn't have, you know, worked so hard to write books or, or, or make, or, or, or create a company. I mean, half the stuff I've accomplished, I've accomplished because I'm trying to convince myself I'm a good dude. Right. So, so, you know, there's, there's an upside to it. If you seek, I think the healing that God offers. It's almost like the Johnny Cash song, the boy named Sue. That's exactly have it. You ever, have you listened to the whole song? You know, you know, Oh yeah. he's like, I named you this. So you would be tough. 
That's exactly it. My father drowned when I was three. You probably know that story. And my, I had, I had a a little bit different than you. I had two stepfathers who were very abusive and didn't like me. So, you know, I was gone by 17. I was out of the house and, and uh, thankfully both of them received the Lord years later. I wish they would have received the Lord, you know, much earlier. But yeah, I feel I feel the same. I do miss my dad. You know, hey, did you? I meant to ask you, how old were you when you connected with your dad? Well, for thirty-seven. And then, did you stay connected? Did you guys stay connected? We didn't, and that's been a question I've kind of had ever since, um, because I wasn't ready at the time to sort of take him into my life. I felt like. He he needed a lot from me, uh, even in those few hours. And then we corresponded a little bit and it just naturally sort of faded. Uh, but uh, I felt like he needed a lot from me that I wasn't able to give. I was still trying to figure out who I was. And uh, so the story didn't go to this, you know, we're good friends today and, yeah. and that sort of yeah. thing. It didn't go there. It was also important to me for me to sort of not romanticize that journey so that I would have a good testimony at church, but to actually sit down and say, do you still need to protect your heart from this? And I felt like I did. There were some other things, Chris, that I won't get into that I I was very grateful that this particular man, who I believe is a very good man, but I, but I was also very grateful that he was not my father, that he was not there yeah, because he had a way of viewing his kids that he had had in other relationships. And when I listened to how he viewed his kids, I was like, I, I don't want that guy viewing me, <laughs> giving his opinion of me anytime soon. You know, it's funny because obviously, you know, I can't meet my dad. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll see him in heaven. But I have this childhood, I'll call it a fantasy, that whenever something happens in my life, if it's really good, I have this fantasy that says, I wish my dad was alive. You know, he'd be proud. Yeah. And when it's bad, I think, well, I would call my dad right now and he would know what to do. Yeah. And I sort of realize that it's a fantasy because I have a great family. My my kids call me and I don't always know what to do. <laughs> you know, so so in the in the absence of a father, I think that this is I'm just I'm I'm processing out loud from your story. In the absence of a father, let's say a mother or somebody important in your life, you kind of build an image of what you think the relationship would be, and you sort of, in your imagination, live out of that, you know, whether it's accurate or not, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think we all do that in many, in other kinds of relationships too, right? Exactly. Comparing exactly. our marriage to some sort of fictional standard, you know, those kinds of things. What's, <laughs> what, you know, what's even in, more interesting to me is, is, you know, I study, I study story and story structure and then have leveraged it in a bunch of different kinds of yeah, ways. One of the things that um, is true, and I was just, I was literally telling my wife this last night, we were watching a movie in bed, you know, you prop up the laptop, yeah. we we're watching yeah. it in 20 minutes. We can watch things 20 minutes at a time. Yeah. Um, I've told this a million times, but almost every movie you see that's a single protagonist movie that is about one specific hero, yeah. uh, almost every one of them you see, the screenwriters will make that kid an orphan. 
it, somehow their backstory, they are fatherless. And yeah. last night we were watching this old movie called Say Anything with John Cusack, like classic kind of coming of age team rom-com that we saw online. And I said, Betsy, you got to you got to watch this. And sure enough, his parents are off in Germany doing something and he's having to live with his sister. I said, see, he's an orphan. And I think I think even even if you grew up with the the greatest father in the world. Yeah. There's a reason these screenplays are making everybody an orphan is because it's a universal human void. Yeah. yeah, it's a universal human thing that that we are without the father, and I, I have to overlay that over over the fall of man and and the separation that existed between God and man. Now, whether or not we have that reunion mm-hmm. at the point we become a Christian, or whether there is a promise of that reunion. And it actually happens at the wedding feast of the Lamb. I don't know. That's way over my head. But I think there is a spiritual reason that we all identify as orphans, even if you grew up with a, a, a great dad or a great and a great mom. You know. Yeah. It's it's in, it's an interesting rabbit trail we could go down. Yeah, it's so it it is. Uh, I so appreciate this conversation we're having. I so admire you, and I wish we lived closer th- so we can connect more often because. We have so many similar interests in that we're both authors. We both we both write about similar things. Actually, we both have a love for government and and, and politics in a healthy way. We both have a passion to see wholeness and health come to our political, you know, our our governmental friends, which we both have. And uh, and uh, we we both we you know we're both fathers who who love kids. So yeah. I just want to say thank you so much for being on here. I want to give a plug for your newest book. I know you said not necessary, but Hero on a Mission, A Path for a Meaningful Life. And uh, I'm sure you can get that. I know you can get that on Amazon because my team bought that off of Amazon. Do you have another way that you'd rather that we bought that book? No, Amazon works great for me. That's great. And I also want to say your story brand book, I said this off off camera, but I wanted to just give you a plug because if you guys, uh, if you're in business or you're in an organization, in our case, we're, you know, we're a large uh, church with a movement. We use that story brand as a part of uh, actually is the structure and strategy for all of the way we communicate. I'd call it marketing, but it's actually more of just telling your story and in a, in a way that's not high pressure or high, high sales uh, it doesn't use manipulation, and I gave that book to one of my my team, who became my marketing leader, and uh, that was probably seven, five, six, seven years ago. She read that book, said, "This is amazing." Hey, there's a course you can take. I assume there's still a course you can take. Yeah, yeah. She took that course, and then she became our marketing leader, and now she's given that book to our entire marketing team in a you know $70 million multifaceted ministry. And all of our, um, every division of our ministry uses that book. So I just want to put a plug in for that book. I know that's an old book, but the, what you taught there works really well, and I want to thank you for that. And Oh, and, thank you. Thanks for using it, Chris. I'm glad to play a part. Yes. Is there a, is there a website? Oh, I see. Storybrand.com. Is that the website that you? Yeah, that website will take you to all the, the, the messaging and marketing stuff that I do full time for a living. Hero on a Mission was a one-off book that I really felt called to write and, uh, and wrestled with it for a long time and finally got it down. 
but it's it's the I get more I got more positive feedback from here on a mission than anything I've ever done. But I make all my money off business books, so that's kind of how that works. Uh, so thankful for you. And hey, tell Betsy I'd love to connect with her. And by the way, next time I go to see our friend in Tennessee. I will connect with you and see if we can have lunch or something together. I'd love to see what you're doing at Goose Hill because I, I've been following it from the beginning. And uh, Yeah, we'd love to have you, Chris. And I'd love to have you out again. So we'll we'll see if we can do that too. Sounds great. I love Yeah, anything to get to Northern California. It's beautiful up there. Come on, baby. God bless you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Chris. Have a great day. You too. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. To stay connected, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter at chrisvalentin.com forward slash subscribe. God bless you.